the copyright expired house banger that is rocking your balls as I start this podcast is You Know You Belong to Somebody Else by Eugene West and James V. Monaco. That will be my backing track as I talk today about fantasy movies of the silent film era. Briefly, before we get to the politics crap. I think it's a good time to talk about fantasy stuff because you have two big fantasy things coming on TV right now, which is the new movies. Uh, One, of course, is on HBO. You have, uh, what is it? Uh, House of... Game of House of Game of Thrones, Dragon of the Rings, and then on Amazon Prime there is uh, Lord of Lord of the Tolkien, uh, Power of the Five Horny Elves. Both are expected to be big hits. Fantasy is a huge part of what's popular these days. So let's trace the roots of that. What did fantasy films look like long, long ago? And the first thing they looked like is they looked awfully fucking foreign, because it turns out that fantasy films in the silent film era there's a lot like unpasteurized dairy is now. If you're seeking it out, you have got to look abroad, because that's the only place you can get it. For whatever reason, Hollywood just kind of didn't do big epic fantasy films in the 1920s. Well, I say for whatever reason. I mean, the reason was budget. I've been watching these old movies. I'll tell you, most of them are, hey, let's point a camera at your vaudeville act. Or, hey, let's go on the back lot and do something with lasso tricks or whatever, and we'll call that a movie, and people will watch it because they are farmers and they are bored. And that business model, by the way, worked really well, so if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And when I was researching fantasy films of the era, three movies kept coming up. The first had the message, Life is a twee journey of adventure and discovery. Guess what? That one was French. That would be 1902's Voyage dans la Lune, which translates, of course, to... National Lampoon's Moon Road Trip. The second movie had the message, Life is a brutal task that must be endured. Guess what? That one was German. 1927's Metropolis. And the third one had the message, The workers will overthrow the capitalists and usher in paradise. That one was from, guess which country? Guess, guess, guess. Soviet Union. Soviet Union. If you guessed the U.S., you were way, way off. We were talking about 1924's Alita. Of those three, the one I want to talk about is Metropolis by Fritz Lang. Because Fritz has a connection to the place where I am for a little while longer, Hollywood, California. Fritz was born in Austria in 1890. We normally think of him as German, but he was actually born in Austria. Although, who really cares about the difference? Oh, that's right. A lot of people back then. Anyway, born in Austria, lost an eye in World War I, like you do. Made the movie Metropolis in Germany in 1927. And Metropolis, that is an interesting movie. I watched it. I legitimately enjoyed it. Because, first of all... When comedians like me make fun of German brutalism, and I just did this when I made the joke about, hey, there's a movie about how life is unending toil, guess what, it was German. That's the joke with Germany. It's, I, I'd like to point out, it's really not that they're Nazis, because that was the past, but the brutalist thing, look, that continues beyond the Nazis, well into, certainly, the East German era. Think about the Sprockets sketch that Mike Myers used to do. The joke is that German art is just cold and harsh and brutal and dour. And a lot of that comes from Metropolis, I think. Because for much of this movie, it's just toil, toil, toil. It's just toil. They're working in this horrible dystopian factory, and it's all about how awful and terrible it is. So in terms of establishing what we think of when we think of German art, I think the movie Metropolis did a lot of that. But I think it's important that it, it is still definitely fantasy. When we're watching these fantasy movies and things these days, like Lord of the Thrones, Game of Dragons, etc., 
what we enjoy is we enjoy being taken to a different time and place. And these fantasy movies, Metropolis, Voyage to the Moon, they do that. They take us to a place that we haven't seen, we can't see. And when you compare that to, hey, let's point a camera at your vaudeville act, it's pretty entertaining. People like being taken to a time and place that they could only imagine, even if that place is a brutal German sweatshop. Metropolis received mixed reviews from critics and lost quite a bit of money, which is interesting, because if a film nerd on four beers ever corners you at a party, they will talk about Metropolis. But it was not really a hit. One person who was not a fan was Joseph Goebbels, and when the Nazis came to power in 1933, they were not too sure about this Fritz Lang character, and Fritz, whose mother was born Jewish, decided, you know what, now's a good time to move. Now's a good time to make that move to Hollywood. You know who should have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame? Uh, Anti-Semites of the late 1900s and early 20th century, because basically the entire American entertainment industry is founded by people fleeing anti-Semitism. That and all of our music is descended from the jazz blues in the Mississippi Delta in the late 19th century. So really, European anti-Semites and Southern segregationists, thank you for founding all of what we now consider to be entertainment in America. Fritz Lang came to America, made a bunch of movies, none of which are particularly distinguished. Metropolis is definitely his best-known film. And he now has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame at 1600 Vine Street, right between the Scientology Center and the three-foot-high pile of human waste, but I repeat myself! thought I'd change up the joke structure on that one this week. Hello, I'm Jeff Maurer. This is the I Might Be Wrong podcast, the only podcast that looks at classic silent films from the 1920s that influenced generations of filmmakers and asks, yeah, but what else did you do? I am Jeff Maurer, a person sporting a last name that also fled Germany, though I don't know exactly when. And today's episode is, what's a progressive anyway? I wanted to write this one because it recently occurred to me that I don't really know a lot about the roots of progressivism. I, like many people, have been using it to mean like a liberal, but like very much so. I kind of use it to refer to Elizabeth Warren, you know, people who don't call themselves socialists, but then they're to the left of your, you know, Bidens and Buttigieg, Buttigieg, what's the plural? I don't know. I've been using it to mean kind of left, but like left, left, but that's not really what it is. It's its own movement. It's its own way of seeing the world. It comes from a very specific time and place. So I thought, okay, time for me to learn what this movement actually is. The episode is called, What's a Progressive Anyway? Subheading, I recently realized that I don't really know. So I had gotten myself into the bad habit of thinking that progressive was just the word liberals started using when liberal became a bad word. At some point in the early 2000s, Democrats mostly ditched the word liberal. Any candidate outside of California or Massachusetts avoided the liberal label like it was a bag full of dog shit. The word, eh, it just kind of seemed to represent something kind of effete and un-American. It made it hard for Democratic politicians to be associated with things that politicians like being associated with, like veterans, dogs, veterans with dogs, and jobs in factories full of machines that make a lot of sparks. Anyway, for a while, the non-socialist left just kind of didn't have a descriptor. Eventually, progressive 
The word progressive filled the void. I never really thought much about this transition. I thought we were just kind of replacing one word with another. Liberals became progressives the same way that secretaries became office managers and degenerate gamblers became crypto enthusiasts. This assumption was dumb of me. I didn't realize that progressivism is more than just caffeinated liberalism. It is a distinct movement with traditions and beliefs all its own. It's time that I learned something about progressivism, especially since I have written about, especially in an essay called The Great Dumbening, I have written about a way of thinking that I consider to be foreign to the liberal left. Could progressivism be that foreign influence? It seems to me like a question worth asking. And I wanted to let progressives speak for themselves, so I read a collection of seminal progressive works. The collection is called American Progressivism, a reader. The works come from the late 19th century and early 20th century. A lot of campaign in 1912 in this book. And it's worth noting that when I talk about progressivism in this article, I am very much talking about progressivism of that time because my goal was to get to the roots of progressivism, not to trace the history of the movement. So if you're talking about progressives in the 50s or 2000s or today, that's a little bit apart from what I'm doing here. I'm really trying to get to, like I said, the roots of the movement, the core elements of the worldview. So that's the book I read, and this column is basically a book report. Book report, except that I actually read the book, unlike in college. You know, 40%, read 40% of the book, skimmed, skimmed a solid 30 to 40% of the book. Anywho, the central premise of progressivism is that the American project is incomplete. At the turn of the century, progressives looked at the world and saw things that needed fixing. Monopolists wielded too much power. Political machines did too. Children worked long hours and made barely enough to buy cigarettes. Sausages contained way too much feces and not enough delicious rat. The civil rights enshrined in the Constitution didn't really fizz progressives' phosphate. They wanted changes to electoral processes and government intervention in the economic sphere. And to progressives, the Constitution was not sacred. Woodrow Wilson, I didn't know this, he kind of hated the Constitution. He spent the decades before his presidency shit-talking the Constitution like a recently divorced woman trashing her ex on wine night. Wilson thought the Constitution had too many checkpoints. If he had lived to see how the filibuster is used today, his brain would have exploded. Or exploded again, you might want to say. Anyway, the fact that Wilson got elected on what amounted to basically a fuck-your-traditions platform does suggest that there was at least some popular support for major reform. Progressive takes on liberalism, and in the stuff I read, they do talk about liberalism a lot. That's the word they use. Their takes on liberalism range from withering to scathing. Progressives felt that liberals were too focused on negative rights, that is, the right to be free from something, Progressives were more interested in positive rights, that is, the right to something. Progressives saw liberalism as right-wing. Now, they were mostly talking about what I would call extreme laissez-faire liberalism, what we would really call libertarianism today. Progressives of the time railed against the idea, which was probably a medium to gigantic straw man, that America had achieved perfection in 1787 and the only thing left to do 
was to kick back and enjoy the fruits of our awesomeness. Progressives had a to-do list as long as a respectable woman's petticoat. Trusts had to be broken up. Political machines needed to be disassembled. Child labor should be ended except for newsies and child actors on Broadway playing newsies. Food should have labels declaring the percentage and type of vermin contained within. And every aspect of life should be accompanied by relentless, horrible sobriety of the type that makes the living envy the dead. I think that this worldview makes a lot of sense in context. Progressives were responding to the challenges of their time, just as their liberal forerunners were. The politics of the day did require progressives to rail against laissez-faire liberalism, but I came to see progressivism as simply the next step once liberalism's slate of negative rights had been largely achieved. And most progressive reforms are widely accepted today, other than that one libertarian dude you knew in college. Nobody really argues for scrapping the income tax, for scrapping child labor laws, the FDA, or direct election of senators. People recognize that these are good and necessary things. Progressives got those things right. Though, I do think it is worth noting that progressivism is much narrower in scope than liberalism. That's my perception anyway. Liberalism deals with fundamental things like due process and free speech. Progressives are more into like food labels. And that is probably due to the fact that liberalism developed on several continents across multiple centuries, while progressivism is the product of a more specific time and place. If a political movement had developed in, say, Pompeii in the year 79 AD, it probably would have had a lot to say about volcano safety, even though volcano safety is a relatively small concern in the grand scheme of things. And of course, turn-of-the-century progressives would absolutely get their woolen, itchy, knee-length knickers in a twist if they heard me call their movement narrow in scope. And that is because one of progressivism's defining traits, at least as far as I perceive it, is uncompromising zeal. Those folks liked to crusade. Progressive literature has the tenor of a letter from Apostle Paul if he was all coked up. They are seeking foot soldiers for their war against the wicked and corrupt, and they will not relent until every immoral, venal, or fun behavior is purged from society. And that zeal, in my opinion, is progressivism's Achilles heel. The progressive speeches and essays I read were very good at identifying problems, but they were not great at articulating limiting principles. The stuff I read expressed a Travis Bickle-esque desire for a rain to come and wash all the scum off the streets, but it did not talk much about when enough would be enough. I chalked that up partly to the nature of political rhetoric. You want to fire people up, not tell them when it's going to be bedtime. But for the most part, principles were conspicuously absent, which makes sense in a movement that defined itself as a necessary response to timid and esoteric liberalism. Progressives did, of course, overstep sometimes. Prohibition 
was their most obvious misfire. It was <laughs> intended to be a righteous victory for clean Christian living, but did end up being the greatest event in the history of the Mafia. So, eh, that's a whoopsie. Some progressives' zeal to engineer a perfect society did lead them to support eugenics. That ain't great. More than a few developed a white man's burden worldview that caused them to support America's colonial curious phase around the turn of the century. I see this as a somewhat predictable outcome for a movement animated by that barnstorming zeal that I talked about. Progressives had endless faith in their ability to reform society, which led to tendencies that could be called nanny statish at best and lightly authoritarian at worst. Some strains of progressivism were populist. Teddy Roosevelt's did have a habit of always claiming to be acting on behalf of the people, even though he rarely ever defined what precisely the people wanted. With time, it became clear that the main thing Roosevelt thought people wanted was a whole lot more Teddy fucking Roosevelt. And I do wonder how many people at the time recognized the irony of a man railing against powerful political operators while at the same time seeking to become the first president ever to win a third term. That does strike me a little bit like interrupting your championship run at Nathan's hot dog eating contest to fume about the unseemliness of gluttony. So my point is, no doubt, it is possible for progressivism to jump the rails. Now, to be fair, it is possible for any way of seeing the world to jump the rails. Being a parrot head can devolve into genocidal fascism under the wrong conditions. I don't view the fact that progressivism led some people to some awfully dark places as evidence that it is a toxic ideology. I feel like I have a better sense of how and why progressivism does sometimes go quite wrong, but I didn't come to view progressivism as inherently dangerous or bad. I was turned off by progressives' zeal. If you listen to this podcast, you know I'm not very into zeal. I did find their unwavering faith in their ability to fix society a wee bit terrifying. The unwavering part is what gets me. But I have to say, ultimately, I would say I found more to like than dislike. The bottom line is that I agree with Progressive's central premise. The American project is unfinished. And I agree with the specifics of many of their reforms. I think they were broadly correct that there was more to do. Progressivism makes sense to me as a continuation of the constant project of improving society. Liberalism arose mostly in response to government tyranny, which was a problem from the beginning of human history until, uh, well, it's actually still a problem. It will likely be a problem forever. This is why I consider the negative rights at the core of liberalism to be fundamental. Progressives probably should have extolled those rights as essential instead of trashing them as insufficient. But even so, the creation of a new movement that responded to new problems was a good thing, in my opinion, and progressives got more right than they got wrong. So, bottom line, gaining a better understanding of progressivism did not cause me to think that progressivism is itself a problem. I found progressivism to be completely compatible 
with liberalism. Authoritarianism is not compatible with liberalism. It is basically liberalism's polar opposite. Same with Marxism. Liberals balk at that level of government control, not to mention the monochromatic color scheme. But I see nothing inconsistent about a person calling themselves a liberal progressive. That is not a nonsense phrase to me. In fact, I think it would be a somewhat accurate descriptor of what I am. The problem, I think, to the extent that there is a problem, is simply the absence of liberal principles. I think that much intra-left tension these days is between progressives who don't hold liberal principles and progressives who do. Those who don't hold liberal principles are fine with things like steamrolling due process in the prosecution of sexual assault claims and the extreme narrowing of the bounds of acceptable speech. Those who do hold liberal principles are bothered by these things and have written many biting Twitter threads saying as much. It may be true that the righteous tenor of progressive rhetoric attracts zealots, but as far as I'm concerned, the progressive label is a red herring. To me, the great political divide continues to be between liberals and everyone else, and the specific flavor of a person's illiberalism isn't especially interesting to me. So, of course, this article would have been a lot more fun if I had concluded that progressivism is a cancer on the body politic that must be purged. That really would have been the savvy new media move. That would have gotten me some clicks. Instead, as always, I went the boring route. I found progressivism to be a little prim for my tastes and entirely too self-assured, but laudable overall. After all, let's not lose sight of this. Child labor is bad. Political machines, they're not really good either. Also, we should be able to elect senators, and if I eat a rat, I want it to be because I am appearing in a reboot of Jackass. The progressive slate of accomplishments is impressive, and I see progressivism as a positive force when it exists alongside and not in place of liberalism. My ignorance of progressivism has now been downgraded from near total to severe, and that transformation has made me fear progressivism less. And that's the episode. I have now done two episodes in which I've spoken at least somewhat favorably about a political ideology that is not quite what I am. A couple months ago I did one called Let Me Tell You Why I Suck, What a Liberal Can Learn from the Far Left. And what I learned is that a lot of times liberals can be kind of timid and navel-gazy and overthink things, whereas the left, you know, for better or for worse, they, <laughs> they are men and women of action, again, for better or for worse. So I should probably do one about conservatism at some point, what I, a liberal, could take, the positive things I could take from conservatism. And that actually won't be hard. I do actually have a soft spot for legitimate, honest-to-God conservatism which is not commonly what you find in the Republican Party of today, but actual conservatism, that sense that sometimes you should go, hang on a minute. <laughs> I do have respect for that. Actually, when I was at Last Week Tonight, I once pitched a piece called John Oliver Salutes Conservatism, which I thought would be a real curveball, which would not have been one people saw coming. But I pitched it when Trump was seizing the Republican nomination back in 2016 because I wanted to kind of point out, hey, there used to be this thing called conservatism, and it was kind of good to have it in the mix, even if 
like me, you're not a conservative, it's good to have it in the mix. And now instead of that, we have this Trumpism thing, which I see nothing good about it, really. So I will probably do one about actual conservatism at some point. Anyway, as always, if you enjoyed the episode, please do share it with your enemies. Please subscribe to my Substack at imightberwrong.substack.com. And as always, please rate me on Apple Podcasts, blah, 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 blah. I might be back next week with another episode. I'm, I'm moving back to D.C. next week, and I've got a lot of work i got to do, so I, I honestly can't promise I'm going to get an article and podcast up next week. But I will be back soon with another episode. So until then, thank you for listening, and bye for now. <laughs>